a little confusing to um, keep track. Once the kingdom divides, there's so many kings and there's two kingdoms and there's multiple prophets and tracking when it all happens. I found a chart that lists it chronologically and all the names and the dates approximately, of course. Um, so I think that'll be a useful guide for us to just try and help fight uh, confusion and make it a little more clear moving forward. So <clears throat> well, welcome back, you hearty, hearty few. This will be week 16 of um, Israel in the Old Testament. We're going to be doing uh, Solomon today. Uh, before we get started, though, as our, as our usual custom, we will have a time of praises and prayer requests. So if anyone has any uh, updates, requests, praises, I'd love to hear them. Yes. Elder Sweet has informed me that there's some, there has been a, a wee bit of sickness throughout the body, and um, we'll certainly pray for those who cannot be here, and we look forward to rejoining with them. So, But yeah, I, like I said, uh, before the regular service, um, I've been talking to family members and keeping up via te uh, email, text, updates, and other things, and I believe currently those few in the body who are ill, who are in the hospital, all are at least showing improvement. Some are showing a lot of improvement, but um, that, that's certainly wonderful news. It seems to be at this point, everyone's at least headed in the right direction, so. Um, I, I don't have an update if he's out yet. I knew he was in, I didn't know he was out. So um, I don't have anything new on that, sorry. But um, does anyone, any, any new news on Gary? Does anyone here know that? Not yet? We'll certainly continue to pray for him as well. Anything else, guys? All right. All right. Well, uh, if there's nothing at all, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started here. We'll just open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much um, for your holy word. I thank you that you have left it to us to teach us. I pray, Lord, that as we um, approach your word this morning, that you would reveal yourself through it. Um, and uh, you would guard us from any error, and that it would be glorifying to you. Um, Lord, we also want to lift up those who can't be here, just the, the many people, more than I can even name by memory, Lord, but um, just those who have been ill, those who are currently ill, those who have family that are ill, um, those who are in the hospital because of illness. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who can be there for each and every one of those individuals. Just watch over them and keep them safe, and we just pray that you would bring your body back together in person soon. Christ, let me pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so this week, as I said, we're going to start Solomon. Um, it's kind of a dense week this week. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of text, a lot of uh, names. Um, we'll try and make it as... as as easy as we can here. Um, under Solomon, Israel will reach in many, it really, it's, it's Zenith. The, 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 the biggest, the most powerful, the most wealthy, um, the farthest Israel will ever get from being sheep herders wandering in the land of Canaan will be under Solomon. Solomon is, is, is the, the crest of the wave for Israel. And then from here through the rest of the Old Testament is we see a downhill slide. Um, Solomon is famous for many things. Um, 
When we finished up David last week, I characterized him as an administrator. We will certainly get to that aspect of Solomon. Um, Solomon's wisdom, unlike anything the world had seen before or since, we'll get to that as well. Um, and, and he will build and glorify Israel in many ways. He will build the temple of God. Because remember, although we are in the promised land now, Israel, Israel is there. They are st- their, their worship is still based around this tent the same tent they marched through the desert with. That might seem odd as, you know, uh, you know, David conquers Jerusalem and all these things have happened, but we still have this tabernacle, the tent, and that is still where the worship of God is, is going on. So um, as we enter here, um, David is, is, is approaching the end of his life. David is getting older. Uh, one commentary I was reading through said that David was a very old and very cold king by this point. Um, and we have uh, rebellion against him. A Benjamite named Sheba rises in rebellion. This is in uh, 2 Samuel 20. And the men of Judah remain loyal to David, but the rest of Israel turns away. The loyalist forces under David's outspoken commander, Joab, lay siege to Sheba at the city of Abel, of Abel. Remember Joab, the guy we talked about last, last time who, who, killed, who killed Absalom and then just excoriated David for um, the way he treated his servants, for his conduct, for his judgment. Really, just about the most thorough verbal dressing down of a king you'll read anywhere. Um, but anyway, th- this Joab, he lays siege um, Sheba at the city of Abel, to prevent the, the whole city from being destroyed, a wise woman intercedes and um, they speak with um, Joab and basically say, we don't want you to destroy the city. Um, we'll, we'll give you, you know, the perpetrator. We'll give you the man who's responsible for this. And Joab says, that'll be fine. So <laughs> in true biblical fashion, Sheba's head is just tossed over the wall. <laughs> They're like, we don't want you coming in here and destroying our city. We know the man you're after. Here's his head. And they toss it over the wall, and Joab says, fine, I don't have to destroy your city. It goes away. Um, it won't be long. I, I'll stop here for just a second. It won't be long um, before we see a split in Israel. Right now, I refer to Israel, the whole thing, Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to see a break there, okay? Kingdom's going to divide. Um, but it's interesting, Judah remains loyal to David during this rebellion. But the rest of Israel rather quickly turns away. This is David, after all. And this disparity is hinting at this division that's going to come soon. Why would Judah remain loyal to David? Not a trick question. Why? Um, I think this is kind of an interesting point to be made just to see what's coming. The first answer. Um, It's important to remember, um, David was anointed king of Judah back in 2 Samuel 2 before he became king over all Israel. That's rather interesting. Also, David's father, Jesse, was a Bethlehemite. He's from Bethlehem, area of. And where's Bethlehem? It's in Judah, southern Israel proper. Judah's one of the southern tribes, the big tribe down at the bottom. So you might say that David was kind of the hometown guy, right? And he was king in Judah before he became king over all the rest of Israel. So <clears throat> just an interesting little point there 
that even in matters of rebellion and kingship, even at this point, Israel, the whole of Israel is not completely on the same page. Um, but anyway, Joab, who is an effective leader among many other things, but we'll get to that, puts down, puts down the uh, insurrection. <clears throat> and then something else that harkens back to a previous ev event goes on. The kingdom is rocked by three years of famine. And David seeks guidance from God. And God informs David that there's blood guilt on Saul's house due to, the pre due to Saul's slaughter of the Gibeonites. We're re reaching way back here. But several weeks ago, um, if you remember, in 2 Samuel 21, we talked about this. The, remember how when Israel was entering the lands and conquering peoples, the Gibeonites had a very interesting strategy for how they're going to deal with this. As the Israelites are coming in with God's favor and they're steamrolling all the people out of the way, the Gibeonites are like, ah, we won't fight them. We will dress ourselves poorly and approach them and just say, we're sojourners. Let us be servants for you, but don't destroy us. Make a vow. We will serve you, but don't wipe us out. And if you want to go back and read, it's in previous notes. But um, basically, the Israelites didn't really do their homework on that one, but um, made sort of a quick decision. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you can be our, our wood carriers, and, and um, we'll, we'll protect you, and you'll be servants to us. They make a vow. Well, right away, they end up having to defend the Gibeonites in battle. And it's interesting that although the vow was made rather rashly, in God's eyes, a vow is a vow, right? So later, when Saul slaughters the Gibeonites, there's blood guilt involved now, right? So we've got a problem. That vow that you made way back when, that we'll be your servant people and you'll take care of us and not kill us, Saul slaughtered a bunch of them. And it's just interesting how God, just because it's his holy people Israel, and just because it was a vow made somewhat in haste does not nullify that vow. There was still a vow made, and God expects it to be kept. So David talks to the Gibeonites, and at their request, David gives them seven sons, or offspring of Saul, and he does spare Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, because remember, David had that close relationship with Jonathan, and they made vows to each other. Um... And they hang these seven men, the Gibeonites do. David later has their bones collected and buried with those of Saul and Jonathan, so he gives them sort of a respectful burial. Um, God then answers David's plea, and the famine's lifted in the, from the land. So um, just, just a little, as we're getting, again, toward the end of David's reign, there's insurrection, there's famine. Um, these are kind of the way things are, are happening. And just some interesting connections to stuff we'd gone through before. And then, of course, we have another rebellion. And David is now very advanced in years, and he will face another challenge from his own household. His son Adonijah moves to usurp the throne. Adonijah makes an alliance with Abathar the priest and Joab, the commander of the army, and they follow him. And Adonijah involves many of the, invites many of the royal officers of Israel, and they come and make sacrifices to God together. We're now in 1 Kings 1, for those of you who are following along. Um, we, uh, <clears throat> we know a little bit about Ad Adonijah as a, as a child from our discussion about David as a father. And if you remember, it talks about how um, in 1 Kings 1.6, 
was speaking of David, the father in relationship to Adonijah, his son, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Remember, we talked about David's failings as a father, and Adonijah, who is now grown up, wants to be king. He wants to be king now. David is weakened. As a matter of fact, David at this point doesn't yet realize what his son has done. So a question for us, as we try to picture how this is playing out, what personality traits would David's negligent parenting, we'll call it, bring out in a young prince? And also, why are all Israel's contenders for the throne so pretty? It mentions specifically that Adonijah, just like Absalom, was a handsome guy. Why is it that all these usurpers are so pretty? I, I don't know. Lee? That's true. That's true. That's true. Maybe, maybe as the king, yeah, as the king, you can always pick the prettiest and the best. <clears throat> David was handsome as well. So there's genetics, yes. Um, I, I did a little bit of reading in some, um, I was reading a, a book about the history of Jerusalem a while back, and it was, it was not a, um, so much a biblical, it was more like a secular history, but there was an interesting point that stuck in my head when I was reading through this, and it said, in the ancient world, beauty, handsome appearance, was considered a sign of God's favor. Because people could see, well, we're not all the same. For some reason, you don't look like the rest of us, right? It must be the favor of the gods. You know what I mean? It's kind of a, we think about it as kind of a primitive idea, sort of a pagan idea. However, American culture today probably can't say too much because I think to some extent we are still fascinated by people that are extremely good looking, even if they have no other interesting or important attributes. So I don't know why, I was just reading through this and I was like, An another pretty guy who wants to be the king, what are the chances? You know, Saul was tall and good looking, David was good looking, it seems to be almost a prerequisite. Um, but the more serious question, what traits in a young prince are being brought out by David being totally hands-off, never disciplining him, never displeased him by saying, why are you doing that? I mean, you're the, you're the prince, you know? And daddy's like, hey, whatever makes you happy. What's that gonna do to a little boy who becomes an adolescent, who becomes a young man? Brat? You know, you're not, yes. That's certainly true. Your appearance can have an effect on your personality. Right. The, the prettiness plus dad doesn't enforce any of the rules. You're the prince. You have every advantage in life. Um, and like, you know how it is with kids. It starts out as petulance and then it's just disobedience, you know, and then someday you're like, whoa, I can't believe you did that. Where'd that come from? Well, it was like the, it was like the sermon this morning, sin as it progresses, as you grow. But anyway, another pretty guy wants to be king. Um, but this is obviously a problem. David, uh, David, in his old and weakened condition, doesn't even quite realize what's happening. But Nathan, who was the prophet at this time, tells Bathsheba, remember Bathsheba? She, we're not done with her in this story yet, that Adonijah set himself up as king, and he advises Bathsheba to go into David to save both her life and the life of her son, Solomon. 
Well, this is, this is uh, interesting stuff. I mean, this is almost uh, a, like a novel now. We have all this palace intrigue and people wanting to be king. It's, uh, it happens a lot about the time one ruler goes down. There's this power struggle. And Bathsheba tells David about what Adonijah has done. So now David's being aware, being made aware of what his son has done, trying to seize the throne. She reminds the king that the eyes of all Israel are on him and to determine, to determine who should be the next king. And that David has already proclaimed it will be Solomon. And we know, remember when David wanted to build the temple, that the word of the Lord um, affirmed David's son Solomon would be the one who'd actually complete the task. Remember he said, David, you don't get to build the temple. You've shed too much blood. Your son Solomon will be the guy. And God had also promised to give Israel peace in the days of Solomon. Very interesting, very different from his dad. Um, used the phrase that Solomon would be a man of rest, just meaning that like, unlike David, who had to fight constantly, who was more of a warrior than an administrator, Solomon will have this rest. So David swears to his wife, one of his wives, Bathsheba, that her son Solomon will be the next king. And David, because remember, Adonijah is running around with Joab, who's the commander of the army, and, a pri and the priest, the high priest. He kind of, he, that's a good power play. I've got the high priest. I've got the commander of the army. Well, David has another priest named Zadok. Anoint Solomon. Anoint him. So like make it official. The trumpets are blown and the, we hear the proclamation. Long live King Solomon. And upon witnessing this, all of a sudden it's a huge change. The people are just like, oh, well, I mean, I know you're acting like king. You're making sacrifices. You're running around with the commander of the army and the high priest. But this guy just got anointed. So that's official. So everyone leaves. And Adonijah, we can only assume that he was terrified because the people all leave him. So he's terrified. And, you know, I, I think in his heart of hearts, he knew that there was probably a fate that awaited him for trying to seize the throne, and now it's been given to his brother instead. Um, and it's interesting, Adonijah goes into the tabernacle, remember the tent, and lays hold of the horns of the altar. You know the altar where we, sat, where we burn these sacrifices? And he won't leave until Solomon promises to spare him. Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a sanctuary spot. It is a, is a holy spot. We'll talk about it more here in a minute. But the idea of just like going to a holy place and it's like, I, I'm going to stay here until you have to. He's sort of asking for terms, you might say. And Solomon agrees to spare him if Adonijah shows himself a worthy man. We'll come back to this. Um, we're now still in 1 Kings 1. And David's um, time to go draws near, and he brings Solomon to him, and he gives him a charge. He says, quote, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. End quote. First Kings 2, 1 through 4. And then David, after reigning for 40 years, dies, and he's buried in Jerusalem. Solomon now sits on the throne, and his kingdom is established. But Adonijah, who had attempted to become king, he now approaches Solomon's mother, 
Bathsheba and makes an odd request. Adonijah basically says, you're the, you're the king's mom. He's not going to say no to you. He can't say no to you. So can you talk to her? Can you talk to the king, excuse me, and ask if I can have Abishag as my wife? Big problem. Why? Because King David at the end of his life was waited on by Abishag. If you read at the beginning of 1 Kings, David was old and advanced in years, and, they, and they, his servant said, let a young woman be um, sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my, the lord and the king may be kept warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag. So in a, notice Adonijah didn't ask the king for this. He asked the king's mom. So what this might appear, or what this at least could look like, is sort of a backdoor second attempt at getting power. Why? Because you might say, well, she was with the king and now she's with me. It might lend some legitimacy to a claim on rulership. And um, what's interesting, we'll find that Solomon is very different in his judgments and pronouncements than his father was. And Solomon pretty generously had spared Adonijah and said, as long as you show yourself to be a worthy man, don't cause trouble, I will let you live. Even though you tried to take the throne, you probably would have had me killed, I'll let you live. But when Adonijah doesn't do what he was asked to do, Solomon's like, okay. And he sends Benaiah, who kills Adonijah. So again, the intrigue continues and, and we're learning that Solomon is uh, capable of different levels of judgments. He certainly judges with a finer point than his father did. Um, really being very merciful, I think, the first time to his, uh, to his brother, Adonijah. But when Adonijah wouldn't do what Solomon said, here are the conditions and terms, Solomon's like, okay. Well, I know, you know, dad didn't always follow through on stuff like this. I will follow through. You broke your end of the agreement. This looks really bad. You're trying to sneak around. You know, you're done. So Adonijah is now completely out of the picture. Um, <clears throat> and David, have, before he passed away, he gave some special advice to Solomon. Many things. It's interesting to hear what one king would tell another king who's getting ready to take the job, but um, especially regarding Joab. And, and I, I didn't, I wasn't going to take as much time on this, but Joab is in and out of this story heavily. He's an important figure, and, and it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. So we're going to take just a minute here and do, David clearly advised Solomon to kill Joab. But Joab is also the man who defended David and put down rebellions and fought off enemies but it's more complicated than that. And I felt like if I didn't give you guys this, you'd be short some pieces of the whole picture. Um, it's a bit of a narrative here, but I will <clears throat> try to get through it quickly because Joab is a complicated character. Joab is the nephew of David by David's sister. He becomes the commander of the army under David. Now, if you reach way back, you probably don't remember, but Ab there was a man named Abner who was the commander of 
Saul's old army, um, you know, and they had a dispute over a woman, and Abner switched from Saul's side to David's side. And this was very instrumental in getting David made king over Israel. Um, so, and he went out and spoke to people and really almost campaigned for David after he switched sides. So Abner was very endeared to David. But after um, the Battle of Gibeon, Abner killed Joab's brother. Joab's brother was pursuing Abner after the battle, and he was the fastest one, and Abner could away, couldn't get away from him. He said, basically, stop chasing me. He said, no. So he killed him. So later, in 2 Samuel 12, Joab took Abner aside at the gate of Hebron and killed him with a sword in vengeance. This was done without knowledge or permission from David. David, in fact, mourns for Abner. So on the one hand, he's the, he's the ruler of the king's army. On the other hand, he killed the king's old ally because of a personal vendetta, right? Because he killed his brother. Well, we go on, and Joab was, an effect, like I said, an effective general and, and, and drove away many of David's enemies in battle. He's a good commander of the army. But he also colluded with Deva, David, excuse me, he also colluded with David to have Uriah the Hittite killed. So you can see Joab keeps popping in and out of these stories so much. So now, okay, you're a good general for me, but you killed my old ally, and we did that thing together, you know, and got that guy killed so I could have his wife. Um, and now that's the mother of the current king. So again, it's all kind of interwoven here. Um, and then Joab helps defeat forces of David's rebellious son, Absalom. However, David had insisted that Absalom be spared. Well, when Joab finds him hanging in a tree, he takes three javelins and sticks them in Absalom's heart. So on the one hand, David, thank you for putting down the rebellion, saving my kingdom. On the other hand, were you able to spare my son like I asked? Most, certainly, most assuredly not. He killed him. Um, and then we remember how Joab rebukes David for his treatment of his servants and his griefs. And maybe it shouldn't be surprising that what happens next in the story is that David replaces Joab as the commander of the army. Be like, okay, you've done well for me, but you've also killed people um, that you weren't supposed to kill. Um, okay, you're, you're out as commander of the army. Um, It could be. It could be that when he looks, that, that when King David looked at Joab, he thought, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that to Uriah. Um, so it, it is interesting. And so now Joab is out as the commander of the army. And again, I know this is a lot of narrative, but just hang in there with me. Well, Joab conceals a sword under his outer garments and approaches the new commander of the army at Gibeon as though he intends to kiss him, grabs him by the beard, stabs him in the stomach and kills him. And then he reclaims control over the army. You know, just like it happens at work. You're going to be replaced. Oh, yeah? Well, I killed the other guy. I guess I'm back in. So, so again, is the, and then... <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Corporate America is rough, you know. Um, so... He re so Joab now reclaims control over the army. You know, the thread goes a little deeper. So then you think like, oh, well, Joab's just this 
monstrous character with no redeeming qualities. No, just like we started today. Joab is the one who goes out and puts down Sheba's rebellion, right? So it's kind of like good, bad, good, bad. Um, and then near the end of David's reign, in what might have been his final mistake, Joab advises and helps Adonijah and takes his side when he tries to usurp the throne. So what are we to make of Joab? How do we describe his connection with Israel's history? Like, someone asked you, like, could you say anything about the man based on what I've just read to you? I would propose that you could describe him as someone who was loyal certainly to himself and who may have been loyal to Israel in a patriotic way. But I don't think you could characterize him as someone who was especially loyal to a single person. He was not willing to forego his own vengeance for his brother's death because of the king's command. And when David got kind of old, it looked like he was saying, well, I'm going to come down on the winning side of this thing. Interesting character. And he's so involved with so much of this story, I just had to stop and kind of go over this a little bit. Thoughts on Joab? I like Lee's point that maybe in King David's eyes it reminds him of a sin that, you know, his most infamous sin. And uh, notice Joab didn't refuse to do it. When King David said, hey, I want Uriah to die in battle, Joab was like, I can make that happen. Interesting. Any other thoughts? Down here in front. I think it's kind of like um, as you see a person's life unfolding, that there may be times of, oh, this doesn't look very good. These are clearly not good things happening, you know, bad actions. And then sometimes a person can start to, you know, do good things. And you think, oh, maybe they're, maybe they're like, you know, vocally, like, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to, you know, I learned from that. Things look better. And then maybe things don't look so good again. So it's like over a person's life, um, you, you know, we have the full story of his life, so we can kind of make a judgment based on that. But as you see a person's life unfolding, you kind of see, oh, there's some good seasons, there's some bad seasons, or there's some good things, maybe more bad things, but there's some good things intermixed in there. Those are some good signs, or, you know, a person isn't usually completely evil. You know, there's some admirable qualities here and there, maybe. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's good. And and like you said, I, I, I'm sure Joab didn't wake up every morning and decide to be a different guy. It's just like I said, we have the full perspective on that. Or he, everything he did was calculated to um, improve himself. That's true. That's true. That, that would be um, sort of the, this sort of like Machiavellian picture of a guy who's a, a self-promoter and, you know, wants to step up, every, you know, improve himself at every stage. Well, he certainly didn't have scruples. No, you know, no, I mean, he no. just he would do whatever, people, yeah. what whatever seemed to advantage him at the time. I mean, he he might do something that David wanted him to do, but it, he may have his motives might simply been this will help me out in the long run. I will get this, or I will be in position here, uh, and so forth. That's a good. That's that's a good thought, <clears throat> and. And, and Zach, as you were pointing out, I, it's so helpful that we have the whole narrative. Some people say history is written by the winning side, right? Whoever wins gets to write the history and decide how it looks to future generations. I'm so thankful that we have a book like the Bible that tells us both the good and the bad and so that we can look back over it because if this were like a, a political history, when you see how the story ends, there'd be nothing good written about, you know, 
Joab. Yeah, <laughs> but like I said, I'm just thankful that we have, you know, the Bible that gives us that full perspective and shows how the day-to-day ups and downs of this character. Go ahead. Question? Yeah, if I can make one more comment Please. on that. It's nice. The um, Jesus Storybook Bible, I think that's the name of it, but um, it talks in the beginning of, like, you know, this is what the Bible is. And it says, you know, some people say the Bible is just a book of rules. Some people say the Bible is like a book about heroes and, you know, fun, like exciting stories. And so it says, like, there are rules in there. And there are some people who do some amazing things. But as you'll quickly see, a lot of the people, or really all the people, are not like this perfect picture. They have some good qualities. They have a lot of bad qualities, too. And really the only hero, true hero, is Jesus. And so... Like you said, it's nice to have that real life picture because, you know, sometimes as a kid, you're reading stories about like the American Revolution. You're like, oh, George Washington is just like the most amazing guy. And then when you get into like middle school or high school, you're like, oh, actually, some of those founding fathers did some not so good things, too. So when you hear the story the first time, that wasn't completely true. And then you get disappointed later. So it's nice that we have the kind of accurate picture. Amen. Amen. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and again, oh, yes, Lee. Cancel culture. That was good. Um, the thing about Joab also is that he had a lot, kind of like David's blood guilt on him because he was like Uriah and the other people that he killed. Um, and then when, you know, Solomon comes along, it's like, I got to get this guy out of here because he's like, he's a witness to all yeah. the credit yeah. that went you on. Know, so. and, and it's just, it, it is so weird. It'd be like, Solomon, literally, you helped kill my mom's first husband. Um, so it, it's an interesting picture. And I don't want this to become a whole lesson about Joab. I just think he's one of the most fascinating generals we read about in the Old Testament. He's very connected with our story. And I thought some of it might actually help us review what we've been through. So we're not going to make this all about Joab, but um, basically, remember how I said Solomon in his, in his judgments has a little bit finer point on it than David does? Um, just as Solomon was able to give Adonijah mercy with stipulation, like if you behave, I'll let you live. If you didn't behave, okay, that's it. Solomon, perhaps because of the greater danger posed or the greater evil that had been done, does not extend this same merciful, the same mercy to uh, Joab. Joab flees also to the tabernacle where he takes hold of the horns of the altar, and Solomon orders Benaiah to kill Joab because of Joab's, quote, bloody deeds. Joab refuses to leave the altar, stating, I will die here. And there's some back and forth between the king, and basically said, that's fine. And Benaiah strikes him down, and Solomon names Benaiah the new commander of the army. So um, in, you might say Benaiah gets a reward for helping take, taking out some of the old, the old characters and becomes the new commander of Solomon's army. So, um, <clears throat> and a question here that I think we touched on a little bit already, just the significance of grabbing the horns of the altar. Um, that it's just, it's a place of sacrifice. It's a holy place. Um, they're seeking, seeking sanctuary. Yeah, basically. I, um, 
I won't go into it too much deeper. And again, there's, there's more to this story. I've just tried to hit the highlights and I've cleaned up some of the gore. If you want to, you know, read through it. All the references are in there. You can get deeper into it and see more of the details. Um, but basically, just to kind of uh, finish up, remember the high priest who um, went in with Adonijah when he tried to seize the throne? Solomon gets a hold of him too, because remember, we're cleaning house now. Um, but again, Solomon seems capable of analyzing the level of the threat and metering out judgment in a proportional way. He doesn't kill the high priest. He replaces him, and you might say sort of um, banishes him. The new king doesn't kill Abathar, the old high priest, and says, you know, because he carried the ark and because he shared in the affliction of King David, his father, you're spared, but you're not going to be high priest anymore. So what we're seeing here is the end of like Solomon kind of cleaning house, David is dead. He's, he's followed through with um, a lot of the things David asked him to do or recommended that he do. Um, and, and Solomon is consolidating his power. Um, and again, Israel will never be bigger and more powerful than it is under Solomon's rule. Um, I actually, I think this is an okay place. I'll leave you guys a, a few, I'll let you guys out a few minutes early today because um, we're going to see Solomon's reign as king next week, his fall and the splitting of the kingdoms, which is why I wanted you guys to have that chart because that's where we're going. I was trying to fit Solomon's wisdom, maybe his most famous attribute, into today's lesson, um, but I just, I, I think it fits better with next week. Um, and we'll see his relationship with other kingdoms. We'll see his, both his successes and his failures to uphold the statutes Moses had given on what a king must and must not do. Um, and Solomon almost being consumed by his own success. Very fascinating. Um, and it is also fascinating to me, and we'll talk about this a lot more next week, Solomon, who became the wisest man ever to walk the face of planet Earth, was not born that way. That's fascinating to me, and we'll get into that next week. There's just a little teaser for you. Solomon didn't grow up being smarter than everyone else around him. That happened in a moment because God gave him that wisdom. That's really strange because most of the... Most of the really, what we think of as very intelligent people, we can argue about who that is, people with high IQ grow up being different, right? They grow up, they don't learn the same way everyone else knows. Their capacity for it is different. They know from an early age, you know, um, you read crazy stories, you know, about people with fantastic IQs that were reading when they were, you know, just a couple years old and this sort of thing. And that's not Solomon. Solomon, who became wiser than any other man, it happened in one moment in time. And that's what we're going to get into next week, and we're five minutes or so early, but um, I'll let you guys go on that one. But again, Solomon is on the throne, Israel is about to hit its peak, and the wave will break, and we'll see Israel crash. And we'll track that all the way to the end. Um, closing thoughts on today's story about Solomon, how he actually became as in sitting on the throne about David and his last, his last, the very end of David's story about Adonijah, about Joab. And again, I hope you guys don't mind spending that much time on Joab. I just thought it was fascinating. Yes, Greg.
I just thought it was interesting that we see that uh, people that replace somebody or people that win out over somebody else tend to then kill that rival and all his family. Uh, and whether it be the priest or whether it be uh, somebody vying for the throne or whatever, this is the same Israelites who have received God's laws. They don't seem to be paying much attention to God's laws at this point. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point, Greg, because, yeah, lest we forget, these are not a people that are under any illusions about what God wants from them. They have a huge law. Remember how many weeks we spent getting through, like, the unpacking of the law and God adding new laws and there's new sins, so now there's more new laws? They know what they're supposed to do. There's specific provisions in the law for the king himself about how he's supposed to have his own copy of the law and read it. You know, he's supposed to be in the Word. Um, so it's not like... It's not like they don't have guidelines for how they're supposed to behave. It's not like they don't have laws. And um, it's funny how at the top level, the, the, the royal elite in some ways behaving as though there were no law at all and just purely secular pragmatism. I want to be king. What do I have to do to be king? Who do I have to get rid of to be king? It's not like they don't have this huge... I mean sections of the law that deal with the most minute things like spontaneous sacrifices. And if you can't afford a sheep, you can use a turtle dove. I mean, really minute laws to please God. And on the other hand, we just be like, oh, I'm king now. I'm going to kill everyone who's in my way. You know, we're like, I want to be king. So I'm going to make a deal with the high priest. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, and I wish I could say it's going to get worse. But remember, this is we're getting to like the high point of Israel. Israel's been rising up and down, up and down, up and down ever since, you know, Abram and Canaan. But they're, they're going to reach their, believe it or not, this is kind of their peak here. And then after this, things are going to crash. So um, other thoughts? That was excellent. Other thoughts? Some over there? Oh, yes. Well, I... I wasn't here for some of those lessons uh, on the law, but when Greg was mentioning, you know, they came in and they killed all the other guys, you know, the pre predecessors. And yet, yes, there was details, but as you read the law, also when they were sent in to fight battles and stuff, they were specifically told to, if there was sin and stuff, that they were supposed to slaughter those certain people and wipe them clean out of there because that was God's judgment on those people. So is that I part think, of what they're doing? I, I think that it could be used as an excuse. Um, I, it is true. God gave specific imperatives at certain times in Israel's history. These people I want gone. Gone. However... That is usually by a specific revelation of God, more than just like a general, like, like, I'm telling you in this case to do that, okay? Now, I could certainly see how a king might use that as justification. Well, these people that don't agree with me are wicked, you know, we'll get rid of them. But again, I, I think that um, I don't want to confuse specific, like we're approaching a city, God told us to wipe this city out, right? And if it didn't happen, then there'd be punishment, um, but at the same time, I don't want to confuse that with um, laws about Israel within Israel. You know what I mean? Israelites relating to each other as, 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 as brothers and sisters of one people under one law. 
um, there are there are imperatives in that law for capital punishment, but not without you know like the, the trial and, and and that sort of thing. So that is certainly something that did happen, um, and I could certainly see how a king could use that as justification. Um, but I I don't know that we can just um, completely say that. Um, well, there was evil, so God wouldn't mind us just wiping them out. I think that because, again, we're talking about brother against brother, Israelite against Israelite, it's a little different. Um, but that's an excellent question. That's a good point. So, um, excellent question. Anything else, guys? Well, like I said, we're about five minutes early, but um, we'll finish up Solomon next week, and then we'll uh, do bring the chart back. Um, if, if that's helpful or useful or blessing for you. We'll, we have to get through also the building of the temple, really important deal. And um, yeah, and then we'll, we'll hit the uh, divided kingdom where everything's gonna change a lot. So thank you guys for being here despite all the other craziness and I wish you all a, a good week, be safe. Thank you.